Well, good morning. Let me invite you to remain standing as we prepare to hear God's Word. Um, today uh, is, as we've been experiencing in our worship service, is Ascension Sunday, where Jesus is crowned King, His coronation day, so to speak, way back then at the early church. Um, and uh, we're also beginning a new series in the book of Acts that we're calling The Story of the Church. And so we recognize at Redeemer that we're at a bit of a crossroads. We're excited about what has come before us in the first 20 years of our ministry, but now we're also entering into a new stage of ministry with a new lead pastor in Paul Hahn, and we're so thankful and excited about that. And it also gives us the opportunity to go back to the early church and say, okay, God, how were you at work there, and how can we dream about you being at work uh, in us and in this church? So because we're still in Easter, we'll close out the benediction from Luke's gospel in chapter 24 and then head on to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So let me read from Luke's gospel here. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, that's on the Mount of Olives, and lifting up His hands, He blessed them. While He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until that day when He was taken up after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, He said, you heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now." So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, I do pray that you would, by your extreme, amazing, and awful power, Lord, would you grant to us, your disciples, that we would know you better. Would you send your Holy Spirit? Would you till up the rough patches in our hearts and our lives? Would you declare yourself to be the matchless King, not only over all of this earth, but also over each one of our hearts? Pray that you would do that now for your sake and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I know uh, many of us, if not all of us, have mourned someone who has passed that we love. I was surprised this Friday when I heard news that Tim Keller had died, how sad I really was. Tim Keller had meant a lot to me. I'd never met him before. I'd been to a conference that he had put on, and he was there, and I was there, and I saw him walking by. He was actually a really tall man, um, and so he was easy to spot when he was walking by, but I was sad. I was deeply saddened. His ministry had blessed me. Oftentimes when people come to Redeemer Presbyterian Church here in San Antonio, they ask, well, was Redeemer planted by Redeemer in New York? And the answer is no, but kind of yes. 
No, Redeemer was not planted in any direct way by Tim Keller's church in New York City, but yes, because his fingerprints really are all over this church. In the materials that he wrote for his own church, we often use those materials to train our leaders. The books that he wrote have had an indelible impact on us. For instance, we have one of his books, The Prodigal God. If you haven't read that book yet, please pick it up. It's a beautiful book. I think there's only one left on the book table. Sorry. The Reason for God as well. If you haven't read that one, pick it up and read it. His insight into culture and into life is incredibly helpful as we think about the God who really is there. Another amazing thing about Tim Keller's ministry is that everyone who knew him say that he was as genuine about his faith in public as he was in private. And it's sad to lose a leader who so exemplified that importance of internal and external life with Jesus. One thing that his family said before he died, it was really amazing that his family was actually given the opportunity or gave us the opportunity to know some of the things that he said as he died of pancreatic cancer. So they were tweeting out some of the things that he said. And one of the things that they said before he died is that this is what he said, there is no downside in me leaving, not in the slightest. Tim Keller said, there's no downside in me leaving, not in the slightest. And I actually think it's really hard to believe those words, right? I mean, surely it would have been better if you would have written another book. Like, can't we just get another book so we can understand some more of like some of your ministry experience and your insight into the gospel? Like, maybe it would have been better if you would have stuck around for a little longer to lead us in more church planting conferences and given us more insight into the culture that you so beautifully were gifted with. Sure, I get it. There's no downside for you, Tim. You're face-to-face with your Savior right now, and that's a beautiful thing. Paul says it's better to depart and be with the Lord. But it does feel like there's downside for me and for your church. When we get to this passage, there's a similar sadness in it, but to a far greater degree. Some of us are sad at the passing of Tim Keller. We didn't even know him. The apostles walked with Jesus, spoke with Him. He was their friend, their Lord. He loved them day and night for three years, and now He's leaving. Sure, Jesus said that He would leave them. He told them even that it was better that He leave, but He's already left them once. He died. They were already sad one time, and then they received Him back as resurrected. Surely they thought, you can't be leaving us again. And this time, now that you're leaving, I have no idea when you're coming back to us. Luke, the master storyteller, captures the sadness in this Acts passage by looking at their eyes. He mentions their eyes or some aspect of them four times. Listen and look with me in verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing. And then verse 11, the angels pick up on their lingering glances. Why do you stand looking into heaven? If this was a movie, it would be like a camera panning from what was going on, Jesus ascending into heaven, from that back to the disciples' eyes, the sadness that they felt because their Savior and friend was leaving them. 
church has always needed to navigate this reality. Jesus isn't here with us right now. He's not here, not physically at least. Every one of us as Christians have this faith that grabs hold of a Savior who we haven't seen yet. We believe the Holy Spirit is with us, the true presence of Jesus, but He's not with us. We're not face to face with Him. One day, by God's grace, when we are called home or when He returns, we will see Him face to face. But right now, we're marked by a tinge of sadness as we pilgrim through this life, not home yet. Despite the sadness that abides in the heart of every Christian pilgrim, Jesus still says to us from John chapter 16, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's better that I depart. And so what we're going to explore today is, okay, how is it better? How do the disciples go from sadness to going back to Jerusalem, realizing that they should have great joy in Luke 24, 52? How do we take the sadness of Jesus' departure and say, no, actually, it really is better for us because our ascended King wants to bless us even in His absence? We're going to look at that in two ways today, that Jesus, our ascended King, is going to bless us in His absence, one, because His ascension reveals to us that He truly is the victorious King. He's won the victory. The second way that the ascension blesses us is that it rejuvenates the mission of the church. It actually compels us to be His ambassadors in this world because He's not here doing that for us. So first, let's look at how the ascension reveals Jesus as our victorious King. Throughout His three years of ministry, Jesus has been speaking about the kingdom of God a lot. He talks about uh, the ethics of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like this. He talks about how the kingdom of heaven grows, that it's like a seed that grows up, or it's like a tree that blesses the birds of the air. He talks about how we should search for it. It's like a field that you find a treasure in, and you should sell everything that you have to buy that field, or like a pearl of great price, that you should do everything to seek the kingdom of God. And yet, up to this point, we haven't seen a coronation, because it's at this moment that Jesus reveals Himself to be the King of that kingdom that He has been speaking about forever, or for all of His ministry. Now, I think that most of you know, or many of you know, that I'm a bit of an Anglophile. Someone came up to me after and asked what that meant. So, a person who likes English things, a person who likes English things. I have Prince Harry's autobiography on my desk at, the, uh, at this very moment. And uh, I like English things, but I have to admit, I didn't watch the coronation of Charles III. Did anyone watch it? Yeah, a couple of you. A couple Anglophiles in the room. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> a couple, oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I didn't watch it. I caught the highlights. I caught the highlights, you know? And uh, a couple of those highlights, really interesting. It's very ritualistic, right? You know, you, know have, you have Charles holding something, and he goes and gives it to someone, and the commentator knows exactly what's happening. So he says, now he's going to hand off the sword of whatever, you know, and you've got that thing going on. And at first, when you're watching it, it kind of feels a little stilted, you know, like very ritualistic. But then you kind of think about the alternative. I was thinking about this this week. The alternative would be a lot worse. 
Like Charles and the Dean of Westminster sitting down together a couple of weeks before the coronation and be like, okay, so we're going to do this crowning thing. What should we do? You know? Like, I don't think they'd come up with anything quite as good as a thousand years of ritual, you know? It's a lot better seeing Charles hold the sword of state than it is the fountain pen of government, for instance, you know? That wasn't that funny, I guess, was it? I thought it was funny. I know that's a little silly, but the rituals actually lend weight and legitimacy to the coronation. Those rituals are important. They lend weight and legitimacy to what was happening in that moment. And it's the same with Jesus' ascension. Way back in Luke 9.51, Jesus, uh, or Luke says this, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. Now, that phrase, taken up, is actually kind of surprising to us. We would expect Jesus to say that He was looking to go to Jerusalem because of His death and resurrection. But actually, Jesus has in view in His ministry His ascension, His coronation. I know what these people need more than anything else. Yes, my death and resurrection. But when I am finally the ascended King that reigns over all of this world… Then, when Jesus is actually taken up to heaven on a cloud in Acts 1-9, there is a prophetic ritual, it seems, that He's going through. It resembles a particular scene in the prophet Daniel. This is from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Listen to this. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, from very early in his earthly ministry, Jesus knew that what we needed was a king whose kingdom would never be destroyed. He brings all of this together when he's talking to the Jerusalem council. In Luke 22, he's speaking to them. They ask, if you're the Christ, tell us. But then Jesus says back to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. It's good that Jesus isn't here right now. Because even though we aren't with Him, not physically present with Him, we, are now, we now know that He reigns in glory over all of the earth and over all of our lives. So let me give us three blessings that flow from this coronation. First, because of the ascension, our redemption is accomplished. It's accomplished. Our redemption from sin and death and sadness is complete. It can't be more finished. Hebrews 1.3 makes the point. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the majesty on high. What the author of the Hebrews is doing is he's tying those two events together, his cross and his ascension and coronation. He's putting them so together like brackets on everything that Jesus has done for us. The redemption is complete. Let me put it a different way. Because Jesus reigns, you will never be more secure in Him than you are right now. Because Jesus reigns, you are completely secure in His love and His redemption. Right now, you sin. 
in heaven, you won't sin anymore. That's going to be better. But you are just as secure right now because of Jesus' ascension as you will be in heaven. You can speak that word to your sin, can't you? Because Jesus reigns, because He purified and He sat down, the work is complete. And this stuff that I'm going through does not make me any less secure. I am just as secure as, when I, as I will be in heaven. That's good news. Second, because of Jesus' ascension, Jesus' victory is universal. It's universal. All peoples, tribes, nations, languages are under His dominion. There's nothing that is not under His lordship. So, if you were in a medieval kingdom, the further, farther that you went away from the capital city, the less dominion that the king would have, right? So, you needed to have an outpost or a kingly town around in order to have protection when you were on the road. You wanted to stick to the king's highway. Especially if you were loyal to the king, you didn't want to go into Sherwood Forest, for instance, right? Because you never know what Robin Hood and his band of merry men would do. I know they're the good guys, but just follow the analogy, right? The kingdom, the king's power diminished the further away you went, but not so in the kingdom of God. There is not a single square inch of ground that Jesus does not claim to be His own. There is not a small cobwebbed recess of our hearts that Jesus has not claimed as His own. What does that mean? Whatever dark roads, whatever difficult providences that Jesus has called you to, He has been there first and He has paved the way for you. Into whatever hardship we are called, to whatever hardship we're called, Jesus has already worked out the ending, and it's for your good. Jesus' kingdom is universal. Third, because of Jesus' ascension, Jesus is going to give us what we need. In our call to worship, we used uh, Ephesians 4. And most kings, whenever they conquer, whenever they have the victory, they take a lot of prisoners and they take the treasury of the people they've conquered, right? So they get prisoners and they get gifts. But what's amazing is that when Jesus ascends to the throne, the captives are not prisoners, they're captivated with His glory, and the money that changes hands, the gifts that change hands, are not those that flow to Jesus, they're actually those that Jesus gives to us. Jesus is the one who distributes based on His gifts and graces and His goodness. Let me say it a different way. Jesus is not stingy. He's not stingy. He's not holding out on you. There isn't something that He is dangling in front of you like, if you're good enough, maybe you can get this. No. He gives. He gives to those who asks. Yeah, He wants you to pray. Yes, He might need you to go and talk to the church or ask for help. That's really important too. But it's not because He's stingy. It's because He wants you to connect to the treasury, the place from which His blessings flow, the church. Jesus is a generous King. He bestows on us what we need to keep going in, his, in this life. So, those are the three things that Jesus' ascension, ascension does for us. He, his victory is complete and universal, 
and benevolent. And then, because of that, that actually rejuvenates our mission as his ambassadors in this world. We are now, because he's the king, called into his mission. He's commissioning us to go out. Look at the apostles' question to Jesus in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, will you make it be what it used to be? Will you bring back the glory days? See what's happening here? The disciples want to go backward. They want to bring us back to the glory days. Their natural tendency is to believe that Jesus' mission is best what it was like before in Israel. So maybe you've noticed a couple of weeks, uh, for a couple of weeks, the pastors have been praying for my shoulder. I dislocated it uh, a number of months ago. And by God's grace, it doesn't, it's not super painful. I'm really thankful right now, but it still makes me sad. But it doesn't make me sad because of the pain. You know what really makes me sad about my dislocated shoulder? It reminds me that I really am in middle age. Like, I'm not, I'm not in my youth anymore. Things aren't just going to heal all of the sudden. I have to deal with ailments now, and I don't like that very much. You know what I want? I just want to go back to the glory days when I had hair, when I had a workable body that didn't hurt, you know? And then some of you are like, oh, you just wait. <laughs> I want the glory days. You know that saying, youth is wasted on the young. I really believe it now. <laughs> the disciples likewise are pining after the glory of old. They've read about the kingdoms of the past. They know about David and Solomon and all of their glory. They've even begun to taste some of those promises fulfilled. And they really thought that this was the time for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Now, there's a ritual going on here too. In some ways, it would make sense that they're expecting this. You know how in the triumphal entry, like every Palm Sunday, the pastor will say something like, Jesus didn't ride in on a war horse, he rode in on a donkey. And like, that's absolutely true. That's a good application. The reason they're saying that is because every time Jesus comes from the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem, he's actually replaying something in Israel's history. After David was exiled in the rebellion of his son, guess what path he followed to take back his kingdom and reign? He was on the Mount of Olives, and he rode down over the Kidron Brook and into Jerusalem through the east gate to reign. And what's really fascinating is that if you read closely Luke's gospel, Jesus comes in from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, does the triumphal entry thing, takes his disciples back to the Mount of Olives that night. They sleep there. Then they enter into it again, and they keep going back and forth, so much so that in Luke 22, we're told that he took the disciples to the Mount of Olives as was his custom. It happened like all the time. And so the disciples in their heads are like, oh, like, of course, Jesus wasn't going to take the kingdom back in his first triumphal entry. He needed to die and then be resurrected. But now, now he has a resurrected body that will never die. This guy's like Superman. Of course, it's time to take Jerusalem and reign. No, no, it's not. 
It's not what Jesus is doing. He tells them to go back to Jerusalem without him. Luke 1.4 and Luke 24.52 tell that to us. Here's what's going on. Jesus isn't going to be a king of old. Solomon, for as great as he was, is not the greatest. Jesus says this in Luke's gospel, something greater than Solomon is here, remember? This isn't an Israelite kingdom anymore. This is the kingdom of God. To be sure, the mission is not radically different from what happened before. Verses 2 and 3 in Acts kind of tell us that the commands are the same. The organizational structure of having the apostles as the corner, as the uh, foundation is the same. But something bigger is happening. There is a full flowering of the kingdom of God that's coming, and it's not just about the glory days of Israel. It's about the worldwide mission of God. Verse 8, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So the question for us is this, when do you want to go back instead of going forward with God? When do you feel like, I want to go back to what it was like? instead of asking, God, how do I go forward in your mission? Jesus might have done something wonderful for you in high school or in college, but we can't live off the fumes of that event forever. It can encourage us, but Jesus has something more for you in the next phase. You might have done amazing ministry at your last church, But one of the things you have to ask is, okay, now that I'm here, God, what are you asking me to do in this next phase? As you personally are thinking about what God is calling you to do next, Redeemer is also doing that too. We recognize we're in a transition period. And so we are dreaming, God, what do you have next for us? The first 20 years of ministry were wonderful. We can't live off those fumes. What do you have for us in the next 20 years? So, what we're going to ask is just we're going to see three things as we close that arise from the text about how God is rejuvenating our ministry. First, the mission of God is characterized by a time of waiting. Waiting. Look at verse 4. Jesus tells them to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Don't you just hate that word? To wait. For a bunch of go-getters to wait sounds like it's not the mission of God, right? But every meaningful mission that God calls us to, He also prepares us for. Luke 14, do you ever build a tower and don't sit down first and count the cost? Right? I want to encourage us, and this time at Redeemer, there's still a lot of ministry to do. Some of that might be in the church. Some of it might be outside the church. Some of it might be recognized by people. Most ministry goes unrecognized that the only one who sees it is God in heaven. And even though the Spirit has always come, already come, we will never move away from needing to have the Spirit tell us, okay, God, okay, person, this is what I want you to do. So as you're sitting there in your chairs and thinking, okay, what do I have to do here next? This is what I want you to pray. Pray for patience of heart and presence of mind to walk into the next ministry opportunity that God has for you. Patience of heart and presence of mind as you take up what the Holy Spirit has for you. The second thing that the mission of God is characterized by is power, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In the next 
chapter of Acts, that power is going to be in grand manifestations of the Holy Spirit, speaking of tongues, and then there's going to be miracles. And it's amazing. But in general, the Holy Spirit who indwells the church doesn't work through grandiose manifestations of power anymore. Most of the time, He gives us little ordinary graces. The continuing power of the Holy Spirit that we should expect is the power of intimacy with Christ. The Spirit connects me to my Savior in relationship. It's the power of resilience. The Spirit helps me to fight against temptation. It's the power of confidence that in difficult trials and with people that I know I need to talk to, I'm able to give credence to what I believe. And here's what happens. Through those seemingly very ordinary things, God's extraordinary power is manifest in this world. It's through those ordinary gifts and graces that God works extraordinary things. The last thing that I want us to see is that the mission of God is worldwide. When He rejuvenates the mission, it's a worldwide mission. Verse 8, it starts in Jerusalem and Judea, goes to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, we could apply that in a lot of different ways. We could say that the mission of God is multicultural. It crosses lots of boundaries. That's important and true. Say the mission of God includes risks going into places that are not what you're comfortable with. You have to get out of your comfort zone to fulfill the mission of God. But the one application I want to make about this is a simple one. The mission of God is big. It's really big. It's a big mission. It's most importantly big enough for you. It's big enough for you to find a place in. If God's mission in this world is only staff of church led, then it's going to fail. If God's mission in this world is only for vocational pastors or missionaries, it's not big enough. My job so to speak, Pastor Bryant's job, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's to equip you for the work of ministry. So you have to ask, okay, God, you have a big mission in this world. What's my role in it? What are you particularly calling me to do? You could come to church and be a spectator at church, but then you're not really participating in the mission of God. Church is not a spectator sport. It's about being called up into something big that God is doing, and we want you to be a part of that. Redeemer has existed for the last 20 years recognizing that the laity of our church has done incredible ministry. That can't stop. But the bigger we get, the easier it is for us to say someone else will do that, right? The diffu- it's called diffusion of responsibility. The bigger we get, the more we think someone else can serve in the nursery. Georgiana will love me saying that. No, 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 you need to serve in the nursery. Please resist the temptation to be a spectator in the mission of God. He enlists all of us. He has a job for you to do in His mission. In the history of the church, we've always called this book the Acts of the Apostles, and it's a fine name, but it's not the best name for the book. Look again at verse 1. 
In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. This is Luke writing, and he's saying, look, in my gospel, I told you what Jesus started to do. What's the implication for the acts of the apostles, really the acts of Jesus? It's that now Jesus is continuing to fulfill His mission through you and through me in the church. Whenever we think that the best days of the church are behind us, we need to look again at the book of Acts. Jesus is continuing to do things. Jesus is continuing to be at work. And I personally am excited about the next stage of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And the question is, are you? Will you join Jesus in that mission? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing Jesus exalting Him on the throne so that He is our matchless King. So He's the King that tells us that the work is complete. We are safe in His hands. But He's also the King that sends us out as His ambassadors. As we long for Him, as we long for You, Jesus, to continue to do and to work and to teach and to change hearts and to turn lives around through our ministry, we pray for that boldly in Jesus' name. Amen.